You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Hey, real quick, in case you were here last week, I feel like I need to issue an apology. So uh, after the service, I was talking to my wife, and um, I made a joke about people from Kentucky. And... um, Listen, I'm trying to be humble here. So my, my wife came to me after the service, and she said, Matt, people don't know that I'm from Kentucky. And so they think you're just making fun of Kentucky people in general. And really, I was just teasing my wife. And so my apology is not for making fun of Kentucky people. I will never apologize. <laughs> okay, true story. If you don't know me, I like to tease. I'm an equal opportunity teaser, and uh, that means I'm going to make fun of you at some point or another. So you can make fun of me back. It'll be great. It's all over the internet. It'll be wonderful. All right. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Kingsway. We are studying the book of Luke. My wife, I love you. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, some of you are like, his poor wife. Yes, I know, right? Yes, she is amazing. Thank you for clapping for my wife. All right. We are in the book of Luke, and today we are studying something that I'm trying to be lighthearted about it because I'm just going to be honest, I'm a hypocrite. And uh, I tried really hard this weekend to get it right. I tried harder to get it right because I didn't practice this well over the last week. And so I'm asking for grace because I'm teaching you what I know is true, but I also know that I have to live it and practice it. This is exactly what Jesus is getting to. Later in Luke chapter six, he gives a story and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? What is the reason of calling me Lord? The word Lord here is master, but we call God Lord. He's Lord of all. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? Then he gives this analogy of two different people. One guy builds his house upon a, a, a firm foundation. He literally digs down through all the dirt and sand and he gets to like a rock bed and then he puts his house on that. And then another guy doesn't. And so what happens when the storms come, when tough times come, turbulent times come, what happens is the guy who didn't build his house on the solid foundation, his house crumbled. And then Jesus says, verse 49, but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck, the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So it invites us into this question, right? When was the last time you heard from God and did what he said. Here's what I know. In America, we have this thing going on right now. So the Barna Research Group, George Barna launched this ministry that basically does statistics across the world, but really specifically the United States. And what they've said is the average person who identifies as a Christian attends church once every four to five weeks. Now, I know what happens in any statistic, statistic, right? You've got your crazy extremes, and then you've got your people in the middle who kind of balance things out, and I get it. And that'd be true in this room. Some of you are here most every Sunday or, 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 or every single Sunday. And others of you come, we literally see you every Christmas and Easter. And if that's you, you aren't even hearing this message. So you wouldn't even know that we're talking about you right now, right? Uh, we're an equal opportunity teaser. So anyway, so, but if you're one of those people that come, say, once a month or every six weeks, what happens in that moment, right? There's, I'm, not, I'm not throwing a stone. I'm not putting anybody down. I just want you to know what happens in that moment. Usually you show up because life happened and you desperately need a word from the Lord. And so you show up, and you just happen to pick a Sunday. Like, we're going to do Songs of Solomon later this year. We're going to spend a few weeks talking to single people among us. And the married people in the room are like, I don't need this anymore. I'm like, I know. But you did at one point. And at some point, somebody taught you some of that wisdom. And then we're going to talk about the wedding and honeymoon night. And if you show up on that Sunday, and you weren't ready for that Sunday. 
And that's the Sunday you picked. You're one out of four. You're one out of six. That's the one you come. You'll be like, wow, I did not need to know about that today. And then we're going to talk about married life. So if you're single, so you see how it works? The way that we find out what we need from God is we keep coming and opening God's word and being challenged and offended and then dealing with it and wrestling with God and figuring out how to apply it. And then we move on to the next week. And there are things that you're going to learn today you don't need today, but you do need them six months from now or a year from now. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you brought a Bible, you can turn there digitally or in paper form. Everything I'm going to be reading will be on the screen behind me. And there's a lot of verses today because there's three main sections. And they're not going to look like they make any sense together. But I promise you, there is a thread that runs through all three sections. Okay? So here's what we're going to do. Let's open it up. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. The Pharisees and their sect said to Jesus... John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? That's a weird question. We'll get there in a second. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and those days they will fast. All right, so first of all, Jesus refers to himself over and over and over again as the bridegroom. What that means is everybody who has accepted Jesus as, as their Lord and Savior has made them the bridegroom. That makes us his bride. And I get it. If you're a dude, that may seem weird to you, but it's not intended to be weird. Marriage on earth, and I don't have time to go to this now, but when we get the Songs of Solomon later this year, it'll make more sense. Marriage on earth is intended to point us to the marriage in heaven with Jesus, with, with God himself as our bridegroom, and we are the bride. That is where it's heading. So marriage on earth is supposed to be a reflection, a mirror of that. That's why Christians should theoretically have the best marriages on the planet, because we are putting into practice everything God has told us, what he does for us. I say this in counseling to men all the time in my office. You do for your wife everything Jesus has done for you. And that's, that's going to take a lifetime to think about, process, consider, practice, repent of, get back to doing the right thing over and over and over again. Now, what's going on here? It's a normal thing for the religious elite. Remember, we started with the Pharisees and those from their sect. There are different religious groups of Jesus' day. Throughout the book of Luke, I'll talk more about those other groups. Today, let's just say focus on the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the best of the best of the best. They were experts in the Old Testament law and the rabbinical teachings about the Old Testament law so that everybody who looks at them would know these guys have got it together and they do a lot of praying and they do a lot of fasting. And in just a few chapters, Jesus is going to rebuke this group for the way they pray because they pray like hypocrites. They like to pray out on street corners so everybody can hear their big and flowery prayers. And Jesus says, you really want your prayers to be heard, go find a closet, get on your knees where no one but God can hear you and God will hear your prayers. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out why is it your disciples don't spend as much time fasting and praying as we do? If you are so important, why are you hanging out with these guys who do these things instead of us? So Jesus' response is, while the bridegroom is here, they don't need to do all those things. They'll do all those things when he's gone. Well, he's talking about himself, and he's talking about us. Because what he's saying is, when Jesus is walking with them, they didn't need to talk to him. He's here. But when he goes to heaven and he starts reigning from heaven, we're going to need to spend a lot of time fasting and praying and talking to could you imagine how hard it would be to have a relationship with your spouse if you're married, if you only talk to them once every five or six weeks? 
What about your kids? Imagine you have a two-year-old at home or a four-year-old at home. Could you imagine you literally don't communicate to them for four weeks in a row? What would happen to the relationship? What would happen to them? Even if you made all their meals and took them everywhere they needed to go, imagine you just didn't talk to them. See, this is how we engage with God sometimes in America, and we wonder why our lives are falling apart. We wonder what's wrong. But it starts not with pointing a finger and and casting a stone. It starts with hearing the words of Jesus saying, what do I do with it, right? Let's talk for a second about what is fasting and what is praying. This is really quick. This is just overview stuff. But fasting is where we deprive ourselves of something we need in order to chase something we need even more. That's a really big theory, but just wrap your head around that for a second. Almost always in the New Testament, actually in the scriptures, fasting has to do with food. So you skip a meal, you skip a series of meals, maybe it's a day or three days or a week or whatever it is, you're skipping something you need for something you need even more, which is God himself. And part of what you're doing is you're learning to control and subdue your flesh in order to listen to and obey God. But there's a power that comes from fasting that you can only get by doing this on a regular basis. Like if I were to say right now, Jesus at one point, uh, his disciples, let me just build on this. I had two thoughts and I stopped to talk about one. So I'll come back to the other. I'm sorry, I'm ADD. Anyway, so Jesus at one point comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a dad there. His son has a demonic problem and he can't fix the problem. The disciples can't fix the problem. Jesus casts out the demon and the disciples say, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Well, here's the thing, ready? Go ahead and fast right now. Ready? Go ahead, do it. All right, for those of you who are snacking, go ahead and spit out your food right now. Put that Twix bar of candy away for a second. You can't fast right now. When do you fast? Then, in the past. Somewhere back there, right? You can start fasting now for power that you need tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, but you can't have fasted for this moment now. It's too late. The power needed to come elsewhere. There are many kinds of fasts, right? You could do a social media fast. You could do a media fast. You could do a a sleep fast. I don't recommend that, but you could do it. You could do a a work fast. The the reason I say that is, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I have to get my Corinthians mixed up. But Paul says, uh, it's okay for a man and a woman to not be intimate together in order to spend time praying and seeking the Lord. And at the end of that agreed upon time, you need to come together so that you don't give the enemy a foothold. The point is, a couple could say, for a season, let's not connect in this way so that we could seek the Lord about something we're dealing with, something going on. We're going to fast from that. Some of you men are like, why did we ever come to this church, honey? Um, <laughs> we're going to fast with it. But then at the end of that season that we've agreed and we're going to seek the Lord, we're going to come together so that Satan can't get a foothold, right? You're fasting from something that is important for something that is more important. Now, what is praying? Praying is the ongoing conversation with God our Father where we both talk and listen for the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. Talk and listen. A lot of us, we have a laundry list of things we lay out. I need you to do this. I need you to fix this. God, help me here. I don't know. And that's not a bad thing. God's a patient Father. He loves to do those things. But when do we ever receive instruction and direction from him? So remember This is like part one of a three-part conversation, and it's going to make more sense as we go. Then he told them this parable, verse 36. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. 
I don't know anything about sewing. I literally don't know anything. I, I, cooking and sewing are the two things I know nothing about. I can burn cereal. Like, I'm telling you right now, you do not want me to do these things for you. But his analogy will make more sense when he gives the second one, and I'll just unpack that second one because it's really the same point. The second thing he says, verse 37, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. I said that last service, somebody went, amen. And I'm not a wine drinker, I don't know anything about that. But here's the thing. So what's happening here is the same analogy, and it leaves you going, Jesus, what are you talking about? But if you just think about it, it's not hard to figure out. Who are we talking to? The Pharisees and those who belong to their sect. They are challenging Jesus and his disciples about prayer and fasting. And then he moves right into a conversation about wine and patches and that kind of thing. And what's happening is if you had a, a wine skin, a thing that they would hold wine in, as the wine would ferment, the wine skin would stretch, Right? So if you go pour new wine into that same wineskin, it starts to stretch. Sooner or later, what's going to happen? It's going to pop. It cannot handle the load. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say, whether it's a patch on clothes or whether it's a wineskin. His whole point, and don't miss this, it's critical. His whole point is you guys have a box that you're trying to stick me in, but your box can't hold me. So we have these Old Testament laws, over 300 laws. Some say do, some say don't. And they relate to ceremonial things and moral things and, and, and even civil things. There's a ton of wisdom in them. But what happened is over the years, the rabbis, as they received the law, and they had to try to help people figure out, what do I do with that in everyday life? Some of them are very spelled out. But some of them, they had to figure out how to apply them. So for years, the rabbis would sit around and discuss these things, and then they would write out their thoughts. This is what it means to obey the law. So that by the time Jesus shows up, not only do we have the law itself, God's law in the Old Testament, especially found in the Torah, you would look at, like, say, Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and you would study those books, really find out God's law. But then you have the rabbinical teachings that went over and above all of those and added, quote-unquote, clarity and the Pharisees were the best of the best of the best at following both of them. At one point, Jesus says, if you really want to make it into heaven, your righteousness is going to have to surpass that of the Pharisees. But see, the Pharisees were really good at holding everybody else accountable to these rules that they added to the rules. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is saying, you can't fit me in your bucket. You put this into that, it's not going to work. I am doing a new thing. Now, the new thing is built on the old thing, but it's not built on all your traditions. It's not built on all your thoughts and ideas about what's okay and what's not okay. That goes a little bit about to what we talked about last week with Pharisees, in case you were here, the whole Kentucky thing, whatever. Anyway, you remember that? So it goes a little bit to that, but it's a new thing. Again, take these two things for just a second, set them aside. Let's look at the third piece, and then we'll find the string that runs through all three. Ready? Well, actually, before we get there, I apologize. Forgot my own point, my own note. Jesus is letting them know, these Pharisees know, that the final and official interpretation of God's law is here. And his name is Jesus. And he's gonna really, really stress that point right now. Chapter six, verse one. 
One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. His disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Well, that's an interesting, why is, why is Luke telling us that? Verse two, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Where does it say it's unlawful to pick grains and rub them in your hands and eat them? The law never specifically states that, the Old Testament law. But in an effort to give clarity, because the Old Testament law does talk about not working on the Sabbath, the rabbis over the years had added all these rules. There were 39 categories of rules for Sabbath keeping, what you could do and couldn't do. And this had to do with like harvesting. So they're looking at this as you're working because you harvested grain. But the reality is they're just hungry. Now, Sabbath is an interesting thing. I've done a lot on this in the past. I do think it may be good for us to do a series on Sabbath again because it's just such a powerful thing to study. It blew my mind when I studied this thing. Like, it blew my mind. But I don't have time to go into all the things, so let me just cover a few things about Sabbath. Sabbath began from God before sin entered the world. If you go read the first two chapters of the creation story, we learn a little bit about this world. In chapter one, we learn about a seven-day creation. God created for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Well, why did God rest? He didn't need to rest. God wasn't tired. The scriptures are super, super clear on that. God does not think like we think. His ways are not our ways. He does not get weak or weary as we get weak or weary. He wasn't tired at the end of creation. He rested on the seventh day, which leads you to ask the question, why did he rest on the seventh day? And the answer is to give us a model for resting. This became such an important theme that when the Israelites were brought out of captivity in Egypt and into the promised land, they were given these laws. Every seventh day, you were to rest. Then, not only that, but they had a series of festivals, seven festivals, and all of them are built around feasting and fasting. Feasting and fasting. You're either throwing a big party and get together with other people, or you're just resting and doing a lot of nothing. I did the math once, and I can't remember now because I don't have it in front of me, but it was like 40 days of rest in a year when you add all of these things together not to count the weekly Sabbath. Every seven years, the land was supposed to lay fallow. You weren't to work the land. Whatever popped up, God would feed you from that. And it was amazing. We found out later it was amazingly healthy for the land to do this. Then every seven sevens, that's 49, in case you forget your math table, right? You've got a sabbatical year, but the 50th year was what's called the year of Jubilee. All debts are erased. But if you ever got to that year, that means you had a Sabbath year followed by a Jubilee year, which is another Sabbath year. That's two days, or two years, sorry, of no work. No work. Who doesn't want to go back to ancient Israel? <laughs> Sounds pretty amazing, right? But this is God's view of life. But what the Pharisees are running up against is they're trying to figure out because God created Sabbath and God taught Sabbath and God implemented Sabbath and he's saying, then why aren't your guys following these rules, Jesus? And his response in verse three, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? First of all, anytime Jesus says, have you never, it's not, like it's a rebuke that's coming. Like you guys are supposed to be the best of the best of the best. Don't you know this story? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. 
When Jesus does this, what he's inviting us to do is he's inviting us to consider for a minute what happened in that story and why is that relevant? Well, if you want to know the details of the story, I recommend you go read 1 Samuel chapter 21. This would have been, I'm trying to remember my biblical timelines now, roughly 1,000 years, I think it is, before Jesus. I think I'm remembering that correctly. And so David, he's got a group of guys with him, and they're running away for their lives. And they're super, super hungry because they've been running. And they come to this little town, and they go to the priest in the town, and they said to the priest, do you have any food that we can eat? Now, David's going to be anointed king, but it's just not time yet. And so what happens is the priest says, I ain't got nothing but the consecrated bread. David says, wonderful, I'll take it. Now, the problem is, that was clarified in the law. That bread was set aside only for the priests. It literally sat inside this, this area where it was the presence of God it was like, oh, so cool. I'll go to that and another time. Another sermon series for another day. But it was not lawful. So when they would trade out the old bread, put fresh bread in its place, the old bread was for the priest to be able to eat. And David took it and ate it. Here's what's fascinating. Nowhere, nowhere in the entire Bible is David rebuked for doing that. Which I remember being a Bible college student and reading through 1 Samuel and, th and just thinking to myself, why is that? Why? I mean, that's not, I remember reading that's not right to do, so why is he not rebuked? And that's what Jesus is inviting you to consider. Why is it that David was not rebuked for doing something that the law clearly said he wasn't allowed to do? And that conundrum will drive some of you crazy because you want to put God in a little wineskin box. Because God is safer when you have a set of rules. Do this and don't do that, and it's easy. But sometimes God gives a rule, and then he teaches that there's something more important than the rule. And that's what Jesus is trying to get to. In fact, in Luke chapter 6 or 5, then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, remember that's a title for himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Lots to say here, but not a lot of time, so let's just stay focused. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, yes, there's a list of rules, but I'm the Lord of the rules. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and I don't need your permission to do it. So again, first of all, anybody who says that Jesus was passive, you didn't read your Bible right. Jesus is anything but passive. He is passionate, not passive. He is passionate to defend the truth. What Jesus is trying to draw and invite all of us into is, yes, there is a rule, there's a principle of Sabbath. It needs to be followed. At another point, Jesus will say, Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't implement Sabbath so that you would have this thing to do on Sabbath. God implemented Sabbath to protect you. And he did it before sin entered the world. How much more so important is Sabbath now? A day of rest, reflection, and worship. How much more so now in this fallen, broken world that we live in? But Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, meaning there are things that can be more important than Sabbath at times. Let's keep going. Verse six. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Again, who are we talking about? Pharisees, these teachers of the law. And what is their motive? Their motive is not to worship. Their motive is not to believe. Their motive is to trip him up and do something with him, to try to discredit his ministry. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up, stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. 
This is an awkward moment. This is as awkward as it gets. Jesus knows what they're thinking. Hey, come here, stand here. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And then he looked around at them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. They did so, and his hand was completely restored. And they're ticked. And you're like, why would they be ticked? Because the principle of Sabbath was more important of them than the principle of people. See, the original purpose of Sabbath was to heal and restore the human body and mind. Let me just ask an annoying question for a second. How are you doing it Sabbathing? Do you ever have time off for worship and reflection with God? A day of rest and recovery? Or do you think your energy drink of choice could just push you through that? To be human is to accept limitations. Have you noticed that you sleep every single night? Okay, have you noticed that you're supposed to sleep every single night? Even the nights that you can't? I remember when uh, one of my sons was a little boy and he was going to bed at night, he was very angry. I said, what are you so upset about? He's like, I hate, I hate that I have to go to bed. Like, I, I get that, bud, right? Like, what little kid has it felt that way at some point, right? I get that. He said, I just wish I could stay up all the time. I said, I, I, I get that too. Sometimes I feel that way too. I said, but just think about it for a minute. While you're going to sleep, is somebody else in another part of the world waking up? Yeah. So God is never sleeping, is he? Well, no. But therein lies the point, right? That God built you to have limits. God built you to need rest. He built you that way. Then, in his glorious plan, he structured the world so that you would be forced to do it. It's just that we live in a world that tells us to push past those limits and not do it. Last week, I shared, if you were here, um, that I've been having some pain with my surgery that I had late last year. And uh, so I reached out to a doctor, and uh, he prescribed prednisone, which is great, except I feel invincible 24-7 for a week. So I didn't really sleep, and it wasn't a lack of desire. I would just lay in bed and go, oh, this is terrible. Then I would fall asleep for a couple hours, and I'd wake up ready to run through a brick wall. It was amazing Um, until I was out of medicine, and then it was like I was just done. I was done. My body had pushed past the limits God gave it for a week until on that eighth or ninth day, I couldn't sustain it anymore. And I felt sad and weary and exhausted and depressed all weekend because I didn't have limitations. Recently, I was meeting with our uh, small group, young couples, um, all of them just starting to become parents, and uh, they were just struggling, right? As soon as you become a parent, something becomes apparent, and that is, I can't do the things that I used to do. And it's really, really hard to accept that. And I remember just saying to them, and I don't know that it was as powerful for them, but honestly, I said it to them, I was like, ooh, I needed that one. And that is this, the sooner you make peace 
with, the, with where you are in life and not where you wish you were, the healthier you're going to be. Let that one sink in for a minute. The sooner you make peace with where you are in life and not where you wish you were, the healthier you're going to be. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious. They began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Why are they so mad? He just healed a guy. Well, because he didn't do it our way. He didn't follow our rules. So what are God's ways and what are God's rules? Well, this is that thread that unifies everything. And what I want to give you is just with our last few minutes, I just want to give you some wisdom, just some wisdom on how to process all of this, all right? But there's so much more to say. And so I really need to leave you in the presence of Jesus, which is what we're going to do today. So first thing is, I want to show you this little chart. I took this from a book that we're going through in one of our men's groups. It's called Lead. And it's really helpful. And there was no triangle in the original graphic. So the original graphic just has these circles that overlap each other, right? And they represent the different areas of our life. Work could represent your job, but also could represent those other responsibilities you have outside of work, like whatever your yard work or your kids or cleaning the house, right? Your relational would be all of those relationships, families and friends and social and all the things you love doing. And then your spiritual life, your service, your ministry, your church, your time with God, your fasting, your praying, whatever it is. Now, in a perfect world, these three things would all be in harmony together in a perfect world. The problem is we don't always live in a perfect world. Now, the power of, I love this, Jeff Worth, our chairman of the elders, he said, I envision like a triangle going around these three circles. And I thought that's so good because what can happen is the work circle needs to get bigger for some reason or another, right? It's a really busy, stressful season. And you could do that for a while, but you cannot have in your mind, I'll just make all of these bigger because you only have so many hours in a day, so many days in a week, so many weeks in a month. We joke on staff all the time. It's crazy how often Sundays come. It's like every seven days, there they are. And so here we are is like trying to prepare and lead a church and ah, oh, I'm running out of time. It's coming whether I like it or not. Well, guess what? So is your life. So you can allow work to get bigger for a season, but you have to understand something else is gonna have to get smaller. See, this doesn't even include like, you know, my me time or my, you know, my hobbies or my, my video games or, or whatever those other things that you do that fill in life, right? So every time one thing gets bigger, everything else just starts to squeeze out. And therein lies the problem. In America, we don't like to stop doing things. We just like to start more. So what does it mean if God is calling me in a season to really invest in a relationship, to invest in a certain thing? I have to accept that there's going to be less room. And you could do that for a season, but you can't do that forever. You have a limit. I have a limit. How do I accept that limit? And the answer is, I draw near to my heavenly father. This is the string that ties all these things together, right? If I build my house on Jesus, if I build my life on Jesus, then I need more teaching, I need more wisdom, and I'm gonna get that week after week after week, coming into his presence and worshiping him and praying and fasting and seeking his face as he continues to teach me. I'm gonna learn things today I don't need for five, for five years from now. But if I don't learn them today, when five years comes, I won't be ready for it and my life will fall apart. But not only that, but if I just try to make Jesus who I want him to be, like, you know, 
There's this whole thing going on on TikTok and TED Talks and all the other videos and social media. They want you to think about life a certain way. Jesus is saying, don't build your life on any of those other ideas. Let me define for you who I am. Don't try to put new wine in an old wineskin. You may have a box or a bucket or a wineskin of what you think God is or who he is or what he's like. And Jesus says, let me define me for you. Don't try to define me. But then he's Lord of the Sabbath. So there are seasons in life where, where God might say, I want you to shift your focus, your attention over here towards your kids. They need you right now. But the only way you could do that is you're going to have to let go of something else. I need you to shift your focus over here now. But the only way you can do that is to let go of something else. Your work, there's a big thing coming up. You got to close this deal because you got to make the money so you can pay the bills for your family. Okay, you could do that. Talk to your spouse. Get on the same page. What are we letting go of so that we can make that change? Because you can't just add and add and add and add and add and add and add. Sooner or later, your body's gonna give out. In a great little book called Ordering Your Private World, there's a new version out, this is the old version, Gordon McDonald. He gives this analogy of, of a naval submarine. And down in the Mediterranean Sea, his friend was, uh, he was one of the officers on the ship and the captain was in bed. But what was happening is there were all these ships up above. They were doing different things. So the submarine below the water is suddenly making these hard right, hard left, sharp turns, trying to adjust constantly to navigating, not hitting these other ships. The captain wakes up and he's like, what is happening? And he goes on deck and he's like, guys, what is going on in here? Everything okay? And the officer who was filling in said, yes, sir. And the captain took a look around the room and he goes, yep. Everything's okay. And he left and went back to his room. And in the book, Gordon does a great job of saying, look, sometimes life gets chaotic, it gets busy, it gets stressful. Things happen, that's fine. But if everything is okay at your center, if your walk with God is okay, if your relationship with God is okay, he could carry you through the turbulent times. And then he says this, there must be a quiet place where all is in order. A place from which comes the energy that overcomes turbulence and is not intimidated by it. That place is called Jesus. Yeah. So here's what I want you to do. Um, I want to send you to communion right now. And listen, I'm about to make a big weighty statement that I don't have time to unpack, okay? <laughs> But what you are doing in communion is you are eating and drinking the presence of God. That bread represents his body, that juice his blood. You are literally in the presence of the Almighty. Don't just take this as a thing. It is a critical thing. You are in his presence. So why not right here, right now, invite him into your story. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever life is throwing at you, whatever it is you need Sabbath from, if you've let something get too big, hear his voice. In fact, I want you to ask yourself these three questions. Which of your circles is overdeveloped and which are underdeveloped? Are you pouring too much time and attention into relationships? Your job is suffering. Your walk with God is suffering. Are you pouring too much time into your ministry? You know, you can actually do that. And your job is suffering and your relationships or your family are suffering. You're pouring too much time into your work. And there's just not enough of you to go around for all those relational needs or, or God's church. What is getting squeezed because of that bigger circle? 
And then what is God calling you to do about it? Now, what I want to do is I'm going to start a prayer. I'm going to hand it to you, and I just want you to invite Jesus into this conversation and ask him what your response is. And I'm going to pray that God give you the courage to do it. Let's pray. Father God, I feel like there's so much more to say. There's so many things that aren't being said. God, would you meet us right here, right now in this place? Would you speak to us your words that we might hear from you, God, and have the courage to respond? We love you, Father. Show us where we have over-invested our hearts and our lives and that God help us to trust that you are Lord of the Sabbath so you can help us to shift our life based around what you're saying. And then God, give us the peace to do what needs to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Forgive me if you've been at Kingsway for a while because I've used this illustration before, but this stick represents my life. If I'm going to keep this stick in balance, it is doable. I mean, it takes hard work. It takes focus, concentration, and intentionality to do it. But you'll notice the reason that the stick is in balance is because I am focusing on the stick, right? As soon as I look at you, I can't keep it in balance anymore. So the stick in many ways is, is me being mindful of my life and staying focused with God. You'll also notice the stick is not perfectly balanced. The stick is constantly moving and shifting, but the reason that it works is because my hand is also constantly shifting and moving with it. And that's what happens when you start to walk with Jesus. He may say to you, you really need to shift over here to get things back in balance with your family. Or you need to shift over here to get things back in balance with me. Or whatever it might be, but as these little weekly shifts occur, things stay in balance. And that's the point of Sabbath. It's this ongoing shifting and talking with God and responding to whatever he calls me to do. And it might be doing something for him, but I can't overcorrect it or what happens. Everything falls. This time of reflection isn't over. I want you to continue to think about those three circles and this analogy. God, what are you calling me to do to shift my life towards you? that I might respond to your spirit and do whatever you're asking me to do because whoever builds their house upon a firm foundation will stand 
when the tough times come.